Welcome to the Uncover Up. My name is Lee Kunle, and together with me are Nathan Radke. Hello. And Elena Papianis. Hi there. Okay, I want to take you guys back. I want to tell you a little story. And it's actually a pretty sad story, but I'm not going to tell you exactly That's what it's about That's usually Nathan's yet. deal. That's right. Sad but stories. I'm also going to tell oh, a sad story right. later. Okay. later. Okay. <laughs> Elena, I think you're going to probably tell a sad and complicated story, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Good. So, so, yeah, so buckle up, basically. Exactly. So my story begins, well, probably earlier than uh, the date I'm going to give, but that's where I'm going to start, is December 4th, 1969. Uh, it's a 4.45 uh, a.m., and uh, in a few minutes, 14 police officers are going to burst into 2337 West Monroe Street uh, in Chicago, Illinois. Inside on the second floor are, maybe it's nine people, in the apartment sleeping. One of them is Mark Clark, and he is sitting on in the living room on a chair, and he's got a gun across his lap. And as the police burst in, they shoot him a number of times in the chest and in the arm, and he dies. The police go uh, through the apartment. They go into the back room where a man named Fred Hampton is sleeping right next to his uh, nine-month pregnant uh, fiance, His fiance is grabbed and dragged out of the room. Fred, though, weirdly doesn't wake up. In all this commotion with people screaming, with 14 police officers shooting, what later will turn out to be something between 80 and 99 bullets, Fred Hampton doesn't wake up. But he does get two first two bullets in his body, uh, his fiance later recounts that uh, when she was in the kitchen, she heard one of the cops say, he's barely alive, he's hardly going to make it. And then she hears two more shots. These are apparently fired at point-blank range into Fred Hampton's head, and he dies. Fred Hampton, and this is a pretty remarkable thing to say maybe on a conspiracy theory podcast where we have tried to debunk a lot of conspiracies, Fred Hampton was the victim of a political assassination in the United States in 1969, conducted by the FBI. Yeah, I'm, the story that we're telling today has everything to do with paranoia. On the one hand, it's about how paranoia can be used against people, how paranoia can be sort of wielded as a, as a weapon in order to control populations and discredit people. And then the other part of this, and that's why this is going to be so complicated to get into, is that sometimes paranoia is justified. And this is definitely one of those occasions where people's paranoia is understandable because what we're going to talk about today is the FBI program called COINTELPRO. So COINTELPRO, uh, which is short for Counterintelligence Program, was an FBI-run uh, counterintelligence program against... Um, political, quote-unquote, political enemies in the United States. Um, I quote here Jesse Walker from his book, The United States of Paranoia, when he writes that uh, COINTELPRO Co was a program to disrupt and neutralize political movements that the Bureau, the FBI, uh, had deemed subversive. And we should probably state here that by neutralize, the FBI actually meant assassinations. Yeah, in some cases. 
I mean, there was basically three tactics that were used in this. There was infiltration of groups. Uh, there was psychological warfare, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was sort of the, the hard power of harassment, intimidation, violence going all the way up to and including assassinations. I've looked at some of the history of the Stasi in East Germany under German communism. And I've always thought that those tactics were something that were really the domain of these totalitarian regimes. Yeah, well, because they're synonymous with those regimes. I mean, when you're talking about the Stasi, and I've been to their headquarters, and it's weird to stand in those interrogation rooms, and you can you can still kind of smell the fear. It's a really mm-hmm. weird experience. And just to see how how horrifying a bureaucracy can become when it's given that much power and that little transparency and that little accountability. And yeah, we, we just associate that level of bureaucratic horror with those regimes, Eastern Germany, Soviet Union. It always seemed to me that that was the big counter argument for Western democracies was that, well, we don't do that kind of stuff. You know, we live in political freedom and what is so distressing about COINTELPRO um, and Elena's going to complicate the story for mm-hmm. us quite a bit in a moment. But one of the things that's so distressing about it is that it basically um, was an attack on First Amendment rights in the United States, which are about um, political beliefs and your right to have them and express them and act upon them. Freedom of association. Yeah. Um, the targets, just so that we're clear on who was being targeted by this FBI operation that went from 1956 to 1971. Uh, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. The Communist Party, anti-Vietnam organizers, civil rights activists, black power generally, that would include uh, anyone from Malcolm X to Martin Luther King, black panthers in, uh, specifically, feminists, the new left, the old left, uh, the Indian, the, sorry, the American Indian movement, uh, white supremacist organizations like the KKK, uh, Students for a Democratic Society, the Weather Underground, the National Lawyers Guild, and the list just goes on. Yeah, maybe we should back up for a second and do sort of a sort of a top-down look at what exactly was this program? What were they trying to do? What was it for? What was happening? You're looking at me? Okay. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, my, yeah, my perspective on this is going to be a bit different than yours. So, Okay, so Lee, you've covered in your readings the Black Power Movement and the FBI's efforts against them. That's right. Nathan, you're covering... Uh, I'm going to look at uh, some of the the dirty tactics they used. I'm right. going to look at a couple examples. One, where they tried to start a war between the uh, American communists and the mafia. And I'm also going to uh, look at what happened to some individuals right. who were caught cases. up in right. COINTELPRO. So I am looking at the FBI's efforts to disrupt uh, and quote-unquote neutralize uh, clan type, what they call quote-unquote clan type and hate organizations. And it seems, I I feel like their efforts here compared to some of the, I don't even know the word to to use, like duplicitous or more sort of vengeful or hateful efforts against something like the Black Power Movement, it seems kind of... These efforts against the KKK seem kind of more like something that some kids in high school could be like, what can we do to really like 
like what jokes can we pull on them in a way like let's make bumper stickers and put them on their cars oh so are you there they were not as serious about i mean pursuing they the were their tactics varied uh, i don't huh. know if we're going to get into this right now they were pursuing but they weren't as like um sharp they weren't yeah. as edged they weren't as edged they weren't as uh like they never sent a letter like mlk would have received um to one of the you know imperial wizards um so it it, it seems a bit like a lower level lower level efforts against and i don't know if that's fair i mean i haven't read all of those documents but that, that's certainly it, yeah. what like uh, my findings were the same as yeah? what you've just said okay. they did not seem to be I think the best way to look at this is that the FBI was was created in a country that is basically made up of, you know, many smaller countries in the form of states. And there's always been this tension in the United States. Is it one large country mm -hmm. altogether? Is it an association of a bunch of small? It's, it's the United States of America. Like within that name itself, there's some sort of complications. And so the FBI is there to sort of be this unifying force that uh, allows sort of the, the prosecution of enemies that are considered, like, in general, to be enemies of the United States. The way I see the FBI, it's funny, because, of course, we spend a lot of time on the FBI's webpage, mm -hmm. because that's one of the places we gather <laughs> yeah. a lot of information. They know us well over there. Mm. Here's an important sentence, a little disclaimer they have, when you're trying to get files from them. It says, the content of the files in the vault encompasses all time periods of bureau history and do not always reflect the current views, policies, and priorities of the FBI. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an amazing sentence because when you look at the history of the FBI, its job has always been to protect America the way it was. Mm -hmm. And in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, what America was to a large degree was a place where racism, uh, sexism, homophobia were rampant. And so what the FBI was doing to a degree was protecting those institutions. It was protecting racism. It was protecting sexism. So these groups that were coming out that Lee mentioned, uh, the civil rights movement and, and student groups who were against war and things like that, because they were trying to change America from the perspective of the FBI trying to defend America as it is, they were threatening America. And so that's why it's fascinating, Elena, yeah. when you say that they didn't seem to be going after the KKK with the same kind of vigor, because maybe that's one of the reasons why. Yeah. Because maybe the KKK wasn't trying to change America as much as the civil rights movements were. Right. Because America was already a place, uh, historically, that had been friendly to groups like that. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to create infighting and a level of paranoia too within the organizations to if you know do they mistrust their leaders are their leaders using their funds correctly um all sorts so there were efforts to at least actually you know what the one thing that they did focus on and they sort of pat, patted themselves on the back uh, a little bit fbi the fbi in these files was trying to avoid violent events mm -hmm. some of the time some of the time some of the some time. of the time maybe that leads to a story that i have which mm -hmm. i think will highlight not only some of the sort of the dirty tactics that were used in this program, this counterintelligence program, but also point out that uh, sometimes they weren't adverse to violence breaking out. Because in that explanation I just gave, FBI is, is out to try to destroy the enemies of America, or at least America that the FBI thinks of as America. Well, there was, I'll give you two examples of two groups that were seen as a threat in the 60s, the communists and uh, the mafia. Mm -hmm. Well, somebody in the COINTELPRO program at the FBI had a good idea. 
And when I say good idea, there's I, quotation marks, there's quotation marks <laughs> yeah. around that. Actually, you know, before we start, I th- I've noticed that I've started to refer to things as interesting when I mean that they're horrifying. Okay. Which I think is kind of a defense mechanism right. that I've built up. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So they've got the communists who they're concerned about. They've got the mafia who they're concerned about. Well, what if, guys, mm-hmm. we could get those two groups to just go to war with each other? And yes. that would just solve the problem. And that would solve, solve the problem. Right. And then, like, the FBI could stand back and be like, huh, look at all this violence that's erupted between the communists and the mafia. I wonder what caused that. Whereas secretly they would know, yeah, we caused that. Mm-hmm. So this was called, and this is something we've talked about before, code names are supposed to have nothing to do with the operation. Right. But that almost never happens because I think the temptation to give a clever code name name is overwhelming. So this is called uh, Hoodwink. <laughs> so, uh, which is basically what they were trying to do. They were trying to hoodwink the communists and the mafia into going to war with each other. And the way they did this was uh, it was a two-pronged operation. The first prong was they started distributing leaflets around the docks where they hoped that they'd be picked up by union uh, organizers who they assumed would be tied in with the Teamsters, who they assumed would be tied in with the mob. The FBI loves leaflets, by the way. Yeah, we're gonna this came up in mind a lot. Yeah, as well. yeah we're gonna see leaflets a lot of leaflets in there. Yeah, that's one of their main weapons. All right, so these leaflets that they spread around, and I've got one here, and I apologize in advance because I'm about to read this in a very broad, ridiculous, cartoonish voice that's gonna sound like a cartoon version of a New Yorker. Now, the reason I'm reading it in that voice is because that's how it's written. It's written in the sort of ridiculous cartoon way to the point that it has deliberate typos in it like the fbi actually went through these uh when they were going through the drafts of these pamphlets they're going to put out and somebody said listen you need to put more typos in this because we need this letter to sound like it was written by a longshoreman Mm -hmm. and i guess the fbi didn't think that longshoreman could write well so they actually deliberately put in some typos right so here's a pamphlet that you might have found if you had just been strolling around the new york city docks dear union boss I've never written a letter like this before, but I feel like I have to write this one because I'm a loyal union man. I drive a truck and belong to a Teamster local. I'm happily married and have three kids. I got no bad gripes. Driving my local has been good to me. About the only bad thing in my life is that I got a commie brother-in-law. He's my wife's brother, and she feels as bad as I do about him, but other than trying to keep him away from our kids as much as possible, there's nothing we can do about him. He believes in the stuff, too. He's always trying to sell communism to me because I'm what he calls working class, but I always tell him to ram it. Nathan, can I? Can you answer honestly? I have one question for you. Yeah. Did you practice that? I have not. This is my oh, first go around, which I is why I sure think you did once. I totally ac- don't believe yeah. this <laughs> accent. I feel like it's wandering around a bit, to be honest. It's okay. It was good. Yeah, but the writing's uh, wandering around a little bit too. Okay. Was oh, you're right. I always tell him to ram it. Last Sunday, my wife has him and the rest of her family. Uh, this is an aside. Family is spelled F-A-M-I-L-E-Y. Over to our house for roast beef. I got into another discussion with him about communism in Vietnam, and it turned into quite an argument. It wound up by him telling me that the leaders of his party were recently in Moscow, and among the instructions they came back from Moscow with was to work hard to make the trucking and dock unions respectable again by getting rid of the gangsters in them now. You and I know that their respectable means making them commie. How does that grab you? Ain't they got a hell of a nerve? They should talk about being respectable. 
This brother-in-law of mine's not in my union. If he was, you'd have his name. I'm sorry I can't say my name to this, but I've only got one family, spelled with E-Y, and you know how that is. A guy one of the stops and make, let me use this copy machine for free. Uh, quick aside, that's, I guess, to explain how this guy got access right. to, like, a mimeograph. <laughs> so I'm able to send this round here in the Northeast to trucking and dock locals at my expense for stamps. That's the least I can do. Please get the word around about this commie plan and don't let the commies take over a patriotic American and union man. So, I mean, from my research, too, that is precisely this kind of ham-fisted, silly approach that the FBI used that uh, when I was listening to some of the interviews about people who were on the receiving end of this, they felt like they could tell who the FBI guys were. I mean, they would show up to these anti-war demos and they'd be the only guys in crew cuts and clean shaven, but like toting a tie-dye t-shirt, you know? Right. And, yeah. You'd be like, hey, uh, look, check out the square hair over there. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and I mean, we have a letter written to Martin Luther King, which is a lot more nasty and distressing but it's similar in the sense that it tries to take this tone of somebody who is on the inside and speaking to other people, you know, reasonable other people. But it, I mean, yeah, they're trying to pretend to be somebody in order to rile up groups. Uh, they did this at the same time they were sending out uh, all these pamphlets everywhere to do the other side. Uh, they pretended to be a, a New York Jewish intellectual and wrote a letter to the communist newspaper, The Daily Worker complaining about uh, the mafia. I see. Uh, now, the hoodwink didn't work because so, nobody cared about the pamphlets right. and the Daily <laughs> Worker didn't write, didn't publish the letter. Yeah. And so hoodwink went nowhere. But it is interesting because it shows you the kind of tactics that were used. Yeah. And on the one hand, it's kind of ridiculous and it's absurd. But if it had been successful, like what would have happened? Would they have erupted in open warfare on the streets of New York City? Like imagine how destructive that mm -hmm. would have been. And it seems like they were willing to allow that to happen in order to eliminate these enemies of the FBI's America. So there's two things that strike me about this. So one is the idea of, um, you know, what's patriotic? Like mm -hmm. you need to do your duty here right, and be patriotic. Right, right. Because in my research on the COINTELPRO against the white hate groups, they they formed this other committee called the National Committee for Domestic Tranquility because huh. it was all about you know keeping the domestic scene peaceful yeah, yeah. and and their focus really was taking this patriotic position and so they would say things like so in a similar way I've come across them this is a, sort of the second point that leads right into they also the FBI made efforts to compare the KKK to Black Power. Being like, mm. this is there's a black clan and there's a white clan. Mm. Right. Both so both are violent. Both are extreme. Same coin. Exactly, and also sort of pointing out this common enemy of communism, and saying things like, so there was one leaflet that I that I read or uh, this was actually maybe a letter, a newsletter, not a leaflet. Um, I wrote down a quote from the end of it. So well, first of all, they talk about how any any turmoil in the country allegedly they're saying it drains the u.s it drains mm -hmm. the u.s right. it's a threat and it comforts and helps the enemy the soviets yeah and so here's one quote uh they say without the expenditure of one ruble the communist conspiracy is effectively augmented by an unconscious agent the mm -hmm. ku klux klan and then they end this newsletter by saying 
quit the Klan and back our boys in Vietnam. And this idea of what's patriotic comes up like probably in their efforts against the Vietnam protesters. And, and it still does today, the idea that if you're anti-anything or anti-war, you're also sort of unpatriotic in mm-hmm. some way rather than actually upholding the ideals. Yeah. You know, um, the other thing that's fascinating about that is that they aren't saying you should quit the KKK because your racist mm-hmm. ideas are absurd. Right, right, right. Yeah. We could just use you to uh, slaughter yeah, yeah, some people. Yeah, use your energies elsewhere. Um, yeah. This I, helps the enemy. Keep hating, but maybe hate over there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd like to just pick up on two things that Elena said, because I think that point about patriotism is a really interesting one and one that I want to develop in just a moment. But I'm not sure if this has or hasn't gotten lost. So I just wanted to focus on the idea that while one could make maybe potentially an argument that a country's whatever internal police will want to keep tabs on known terrorist outfits, COINTELPRO was very much also directed at people who are completely nonviolent. Uh, feminists getting together at book clubs and, you know, talking about stuff. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, if there was any man who stood for nonviolence, it would be that guy. And so it's important, I think, to note that this was a surveillance against anybody deemed potentially an enemy, not people who were uh, uh, overtly violent. But on this question of patriotism, so it's worth wondering how is it that we even know about COINTELPRO? And this story I found absolutely remarkable. At first I had to do a double take when I discovered it because I was reading about the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI and how they burgled, at, that is, as in broke into... With a crowbar and like disguises cr- and stuff. Yeah, an FBI field office. So then I had to look up what the citizens of the commission to investigate the FBI were because they sounded like a very reasonable commission, (laughs) maybe struck by the Senate or something. It turns out these were a group of maybe Vietnam protesters. Some um, professors. Professors, uh, people in the 60s who were really asking themselves, and this, Elena, is where I wanted to um, connect to your point, asking themselves, what does it mean to be a patriot? Mm -hmm. If... I know uh, that the people in charge are breaking the law. If I know that they are doing something fundamentally unjust, is it my duty just to follow along, which would be one version of patriotism, or is it my duty to do something about it and fix it? And this group decided it was their duty to expose the malfeasance of the FBI, which was, this was an illegal program that was um, perpetrated, among other things, with assassinations, um, against citizens of the United States. Yeah, and just a, this, such an example of such vast overreach yeah, by I, a bureaucracy. So this group broke in in the middle of the night. On the night it was, um, I have it written down. Ali Frazier. Exactly. It was the night of the Ali Frazier match. Oh, that's right. So that they yeah. would there would be a lot of distraction, distraction yeah. for people. And um, they broke in. They stole a thousand documents or three pounds. Uh, they got three pounds of paper out of there. They sifted through it and they sent it to uh, various media outlets. Uh, it was first Some of it was first published by the Chicago Tribune. And then later, um, WIN, W-I-N magazine, published the complete data dump in uh, 1972. These documents that revealed that uh, the FBI is spying 
on citizens who are even remotely politically interested, either on the right or the left. And not only spying on them, but then actively basically trying to discredit them by making them seem paranoid. But you make them seem paranoid by doing things to them that that would right. cause their paranoia. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder, for example, what does it sound like at the end of 1969 when a Black Panther says, the FBI's out to get us, they're killing us. I think a lot of people in white suburban America would laugh that off mm-hmm. as a completely outrageous conspiracy theory. Tinfoil hat stuff. Yeah, and it happened, and not just once. I mean, the, the, the stuff around... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is also just unbelievable. Wiretaps, surveillance. Um. Why don't we get into that now, actually, to show just how out of control this program was. This is a letter written to Martin Luther King Jr. about a month or so before he is to accept his Nobel Peace Prize. And the point of the letter is to try and get Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to commit suicide. Okay. In view of your low-grade, abnormal personal behavior, I will not dignify your name with either a mister or a reverend or a doctor. And your last name calls to mind only the type of king such as King Henry VIII and his countless acts of adultery and immoral conduct lower than that of a beast. And then I'll skip down. And it goes on like that. Yeah. Saying basically how poor his character is, you're no clergyman, so you're the, a fraud. Accusing him of having affairs. That's right, which apparently, and I'm I'm just going by the information I read, apparently he did have that and affairs. They, t- and they then t- t- were, yeah. It was because he was being surveilled that they caught all of this, and they were trying to bribe him or manipulate him into doing stuff. So the, the rest of the letter continues in a really mean-spirited tone about just how Um, what the solution would be to this situation. So, King, I'll start even here. King, you are done. The American public, the church organizations that have been helping Protestant, Catholic, and Jews will know you for what you are, an evil, abnormal beast. So will others who have backed you. You are done. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do. This exact number has been selected for you for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. You are done. There's but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. And so this is, again, a letter by the FBI pretending to be a member of his community trying to encourage one of the people who is today considered an absolute icon of American 20th century American political life, trying to get this man to commit suicide because they were worried that he might have had some affiliations with communism. Well, that's partly why it's so interesting to bring this up and talk about this, because that is not common knowledge that he was seen as such an enemy of the state and that these things were done against him, right? That's far enough in most people's sort of contemporary consciousness that they don't realize that. Yeah, in some ways, I feel like Martin Luther King Jr. has sort of been, like, they've they've softened him to make him more acceptable to the masses. And when you look at the things he's actually talking about, he's, he's quite a revolutionary. And so now we have this idea of him, you know, he was sort of gentle and kind and didn't fight back, but he was taking some serious risks Mm -hmm. and he was up against these massive structures. Right, and we're also looking back from our time period. So people are like, well, of course, civil rights, that makes sense, right? (laughs) But at the time, it was a real battle. It was 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 a a real revolution, yeah. Change is scary to people. Like Martin Luther King, uh, just to 
complete the circle, Fred Hampton, uh, before he was shot, he was organizing um, street gangs in Chicago. He was going also across uh, racial boundaries. He was uh, organizing black, Hispanic, but also white, underprivileged youth in Chicago. Mm. Had There was going to be a, a kind of a merger that brought some of these street gangs into the Black Panther Party, which would have effectively double or tripled the membership of the Chicago chapter. He was involved in breakfast programs for underprivileged kids. Uh, the Black Panthers generally, among other things, provided free medical clinics. These are the kinds of things that he was involved in. Now, his rhetoric is fiery. But, and actually, when uh, an early Los Angeles FBI agent had been told to infiltrate the Panthers, the report he came back to Hoover with was, they're mostly trying to feed children in the neighborhood. Like, right. that's, and, their, that's their main right. goal. That's their main, like, day-to-day -day operation. And Hoover's response was that, uh, that agent better find something or his career was finished. And yeah. there's a record of Hoover basically saying that. So again, you know, the Black Panther Party, they were radicals. They are radicals. Marxists, socialists, uh, revolutionaries. But they, but they were, were up against a massive racist structure. And they were not just running around with guns. I mean, they were really trying to... Do something exactly. Too, right? They yeah. were real. That was, and I would say that first and foremost. Mm -hmm. You know, they were. It was first and foremost about the breakfast programs, about actually living some kind of improvement, as Gandhi might have said. You know, be the change you want to see in the world. And this studying upon what happened with COINTELPRO uh, between the fifties and the seventies struck a really deep chord with me because I teach my day job is to teach political science. And one of the things that I experience very viscerally is a kind of apathy among young people, a kind of total disengagement. What is so striking and shocking about this is that when you have all these different groups of people engaged in trying to make the world better, and the okay, I'm obviously bracketing the KKK here, but a lot <laughs> yeah, of people yeah. <laughs> who are, you know, really trying to make the world better are seen as a threat mm -hmm. and you know, destroyed. And I think it's, I, I'm sorry to kind of veer off into a tangent, but I find it a really kind of sad state today uh, about how we've sort of produced a kind of apolitical culture. And I think that this was a real part of that. Well, look at what happened. Uh, what you're saying, I think, is fascinating, especially when you're talking about uh, the students that you encounter. Let's look at a group of students, the Students for a Democratic Society, yeah. <laughs> group in the 1960s. Uh, again, uh, they were against the Vietnam War. They were concerned about government overreach. They were concerned about racism in American society. Well, they were considered a threat by the FBI, and so immediately COINTELPRO sort of goes to work on them. They start to infiltrate those student groups, again, with their square haircuts and probably looking pretty silly. <laughs> One of the main things that they did was they would identify the leaders of the SDS and then try to convince the other members that, oh, you know, those guys are probably working for the FBI. Because if you mm -hmm. can turn them against each other, totally. of course, it's that They did that with conquer. the KKK. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah Although, sure. again, less enthusiastically. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but what's amazing about this is, so then what happens is they are ultimately sort of successful at disbanding this student group, the SDS, who are 
you know, they're they're having marches and they're doing protests and things like that, but they're a nonviolent group. Well, one of the things that happens because they start to become so paranoid, which is fundamentally one of the key parts of COINTELPRO is to make people paranoid mm-hmm. so they're discredited. Well, a lot of them become so paranoid that they become radicalized and they break off from the SDS. In 1969, the Students for a Democratic Society crumbles. And what emerges from it is this group called the Weather Underground Organization. And at that point, having been bombarded with the, the paranoia and the surveillance and the dirty tactics by the FBI, at this point, they are basically a terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. You have taken a large group of students who are interested in social justice, and you've destroyed that organization. And what emerges from the rubble is a terrorist group yeah. who then sets off two dozen bombings over the next couple of years, bombing New York City police headquarters, arson attacks on court buildings in New York. There was a Chicago statue that they blew up three times. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's that's kind of a funny story, actually. What was the statue? Do you know? Well, it was a statue that was honoring police officers, and so they oh, blew it up. Okay. And so then they rebuilt it, and then they blew it up again. Okay. Wow. And then they rebuilt it, and then they blew it up again. And then they rebuilt it in police headquarters, and right. I think it's still there to this right. day. But So you could almost say that, to a degree, the rise of the weather underground was in part caused mm-hmm. by this, this COINTELPRO tactic against the SDS, whereas if they had maybe interacted with those students in like a less ridiculous Mm -hmm. manner, they could have harnessed some of that energy, they could have opened a dialogue, there could have been a conversation. Instead, they created some well-seasoned radicals. Yeah, I blew a bunch of stuff up. This again comes back to Elena's point about patriotism. Um, Between the Students for a Democratic Society and the FBI, who are the patriots? I mean, for me, it would be the students who yeah. are trying to make the world better, who are trying to get out of Vietnam, which I think most people now looking back recognize it for the disaster that it was. Including the architects of it, right. including people like yeah. Robert McNamara, who looking back towards the end of his life was like, yeah, I don't know. Although he so, never fully, he sort uh, of... He, he danced around it. Yeah, he danced around it. But what's interesting is that you might think that the rise of the Weather Underground from the SDS was a failure of COINTELPRO, but you could make the argument that actually it was sort of a horrifying success Mm -hmm. because what the Weather Underground did by blowing stuff up instead Mm -hmm. of having peaceful protests is it discredited that entire movement. In fact, I've got a quote here from somebody in the Weather Underground, Mark Rudd. We in the Weatherman leadership had made the decision that SDS wasn't radical enough, so we disbanded the national and regional offices, dissolved the national organization, and set the chapters adrift. We couldn't have done the FBI's work better for them had we been paid mm-hmm. agents mm-hmm. because they took all of that organization, that whole movement, and destroyed it and turned mm-hmm. it into something that basically just blew up Dustin Hoffman's house. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Was uh, so that on weird. purpose? No. They're, they, in Greenwich Village, their they're like secret headquarters was just right beside where Dustin Hoffman lived. Oh, interesting. Okay. So if you go to Google, oh, I see. you can and find a picture of Dustin Hoffman running down the street with a painting above his head after his house exploded. No way. Okay. That's when they were building the bomb, right? That's and when they, they, were blew bomb and they blew themselves up. Yeah, yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I should tell you some of the tactics that they used against the KKK. The KKK. So I think we're going to be more sympathetic to this part of it. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. Let's first of all their motive. So creating paranoia within the groups, it's a good uh, move. especially towards uh, the leaders. So maybe to create distrust or question around, uh, questions around how those leaders are using the funds and the dues and everything they're collecting, whether or not they're like living lavishly, 
Uh, they wanted to capitalize on any fractures that they suspected were there. I guess some of their informants might have said, oh, you know, um, they would tell them of some disagreements maybe within the groups. Let me tell you some of their techniques, though. So they wanted to send notes about maybe a future clan meeting, and they'd send them, instead of sending them to a person's home, they might send them to their place of work oh, okay. in order to create, you know, some right, right, fears right. around being found out. Or they'd purposely put the address one off so okay. it would go to their neighbors uh, right. which would create gossip and suspicion amongst the neighborhood uh they've created bumper stickers they want to create bumper stickers that said members of kkk and put them on the members cars so they drive around town with them um i feel like in a lot of towns back then people would have been fine with that yeah th- yeah exactly and wave. yeah me too so um those cartoons which i sent you guys about creating fears about being infiltrated by mm-hmm. the FBI and that there's informants in there that know everything. and um, Which, of course, was also true. Right. They were in there. So yeah. the, not only did they have informants in there, but then the the thing that they were trying to do is spread the fear that they had informants right. in there. Right, right. It's this weird well, combination. What's the good of having informants if nobody knows? <laughs> yeah. They would feed information to newspapers to try and expose right. the, uh, you know, the efforts of the group or depict them as violent or depict them as ridiculous. Uh, they were hoping that they'd be sort of publicly ridiculed if they were exposed. Uh, what else would they do? Then they also tried sort of stuff behind the scenes, like trying to uh, legally get their charter revoked as an organization so that they couldn't legally right. meet anymore. Or they'd like call in safety regulations for their buildings and so hope that they wouldn't be able to use them anymore for their meetings. So the, they were pranking them, basically. They were pranked. That's what they I mean. Were, it were, felt like a bunch of high school kids yeah, or like mean pranking girls. Pranking the, the KKK. Yeah. Or they'd have people, if, if one of the Imperial Wizards was which i sound it's so weird to say those words together um or at all really uh if they were like on a television show or a news or a radio show they'd have people anonymous anonymously calling in to ask embarrassing questions about like use of funds or any events that might be embarrassing to them i sort of approve of that part of it yeah yeah, uh, or they'd like try and get their hotel that's hosting their clan vacation um, to get no. them to cancel. Yes, that's well, a that, thing. That, that, yes, oh, a clan vacation. Clan vacation. Clan vacation. Yeah, oh clan, my God. yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, I guess or is it clan vacation? No, it's clan vacation. Um, so yeah, it felt kind of pranky. It did feel that way. But they seem to be, and I think in part this was because of J. Edgar Hoover and just his sort of his leanings and his tendencies. They seem to be so much like harsher against the civil rights workers sure. than they were against the KKK. Yeah. yeah. Well, COINTELPRO was set up first and foremost to keep tabs on the communists. And I think it really is an outgrowth of this Cold War paranoia mm-hmm. that the communists are infiltrating American society, they're sleeper agents, you know, we've kind of heard this stuff in other contexts before. And I am... Uh, certainly no fan of the KKK and their politics. I, I think that is, uh, that is a safe thing to say. <laughs> right. I, I, think I just needed to say it, though, <laughs> yeah. out loud. So that seems understated, if okay. anything. Yeah. Um, I have to, though, admit that some of these tactics still make me uncomfortable, even with right. um, a, a far-right uh, racist outfit. I have no problem. I understand the need for a state security apparatus to know about militant and potentially violent elements within the body politic. I think that we cross a line when we go into disrupting, when we try and infiltrate, undermine the groups. I think I don't think we, that we shouldn't any, become thugs when well, we're fighting I, thugs. I don't think any KKK 
remember, I mean, I'm guessing here, but I can't imagine that any of these tactics had any kind of positive impact in the sense of getting people to rethink racist politics. It no, does- it's true. It, it was maybe more fear tactics. Like if they would hope that someone would be paranoid or if they sent a note and it went to their home that their family would beg right. them to quit the clan because it would cause you know, bring them too much bad attention. And, and as much as I would want every single clan member to stop being a clan member, I find that that is fundamentally against a kind of free political culture. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm totally... So I just, this is where I still maintain a kind of shocked sense about what the FBI was doing, even when it's against my own political enemies. Well, and I've got a story here that I think sort of ties a lot of this together and points out not only the tactics that were used, the dirty pool that was played, but also the fact that they were not as concerned with the KKK as they were with Mm -hmm. civil rights leaders. Because there was a woman, uh, Viola Liozzo, uh, she was uh, she was involved with the civil rights movement. She was a white woman, but uh, she was helping with fundraising. She was helping with organizing. She was helping driving people around and, and that kind of thing. Well, in 1965, she was uh, driving in a car and a car pulled up beside her and opened fire on that car and murdered her. No. And the people who murdered her were four Klan members. And one of the Klan members who were in that car was also an FBI informant. Hmm. That's sort of embarrassing on a lot of levels, that there was somebody working for the FBI who had also just participated in this murder. Mm -hmm. And what's worse is that afterwards, what the FBI did to kind of cover their tracks and the fact that this was sort of a bad look for them to have had an informant involved in this murder, is they, uh, J. Edgar Hoover personally, led this sort of attempt to discredit and smear the reputation of Liozzo. Mm. They said, oh, she had cuts in her arm, probably from drug use or from the broken glass and the bullets that had gone through her body. They said she was sitting very close to a black person, sort of hinting at this sort of I don't even know what's being hinted at. What, what is the connection there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, so even if you were a drug user, this mm-hmm. then explains how you got shot up in your car? But they didn't want this story to come out of this nice white woman who right. was trying to be a civil rights worker who was doing this sort of good work who had been brutally killed in cold blood by the KKK. Mm-hmm. They had to somehow change the story. And so right. it was an active play by the FBI to try to make her look bad. Right. And now I'm all angry, and I think we should take a quick break. Okay. Because I have a hard time with emotions. And we're back from break. And I timed the break poorly because I'm just going to get unhappy and sad again because I got another sad story. But I think these are important because it's, I mean, it's one thing for us to sort of think about sort of larger movements and organizations and things like that. But it's also good to remember that these are individuals, like these massive social events and historical forces, they apply to individual people in their lives. So I've got another story. Uh, This is another threat to the American way of life, according to COINTELPRO. She was a famous actress named Jean Seberg. 
uh, American actress. Eventually, uh, she would move to France for some time. Uh, she was in a lot of French films, sort of an artsy actress. She had sort of a pixie cut. She looked very 1960s. Okay. Like if you imagine a 1960s actress, she kind of looks like that. Well, uh, not only did she speak French, which sort of makes her a little bit suspect, but again, she was active in the civil rights movement and was uh, actively donating money to the to the uh, Black Panther Party. So I've got here a file from the FBI with a little note at the end. Jean Suberg has been a financial supporter of the Black Panther Party and should be neutralized. That's a scary thing to hear from a government organization. Uh, her current pregnancy by redacted. Uh, her current pregnancy by blank, while still married, affords an opportunity for such effort. The plan suggested by Los Angeles appears to have merit except for the timing since the sensitive source might be compromised if imp implemented prematurely. So what are they talking about? Well, the plan was to take her pregnancy and to leak it to a gossip columnist in L.A. and say that she was actually knocked up by a member of the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't her husband's kid. It was a Black Panther's kid. And they thought that this would discredit her enough so that she would no longer be useful. Uh, she'd probably lose her job. She would no longer be considered like a Hollywood starlet. And it would basically ruin her life. And she would be, as they say, neutralized. Well... That kind of that's kind of despicable for lots of reasons. It plays into this sort of racist fear of commingling, and so it's already fairly despicable there. And it's also despicable because you're attacking this woman uh, just because she is contributing money to these civil rights movements. Well, it was sort of successful, uh, depending on how you want to term uh, success, because they did plant the story. Uh, it caused quite an uproar. Uh, Seberg herself uh, became quite ill, possibly due to stress. Uh, she miscarried and oh, no. lost the uh, child. Uh, here's a quote from Seberg, because, of course, there had been so much rumor that, oh, she had been knocked up by a Black Panther. So here's a quote from her. We opened the coffin and took 180 photographs, and everybody who was curious about the color of the baby uh, got a chance to check it out. That's really sad. Yeah, it's it's unbelievably sad. Mm. Uh, the I mean, because the baby was her husband's. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets worse if you uh, if you want to get sadder. So, according to her husband, uh, she was also bombarded with a lot of the dirty tricks that Elena mm -hmm. was talking about mm -hmm. before, like phone calls and letters and things like that. And she had gotten quite. You can't even say she got paranoid because she was genuinely right. the Being target harassed. of yeah, of, of yeah. the FBI. But to, of course, her friends, it seems like paranoia. And so, and she had also lost this kid and was being harassed. So apparently every year for a few years on the anniversary of the miscarriage, she attempted suicide. Oh, oh no. Man. And then in 1979, she successfully committed suicide. Oh, that's terrible. But, I mean, there you go. She got neutralized. neutralized. She got neutralized wow. by the FBI. And. There are so many stories like this of people who are totally not famous. Um, one of the groups that uh, the FBI really focused on uh, was what's known as the New Left. And this is a kind of disparate group of um, left-wing intellectuals, student groups. Well, including groups like the SDS. Exactly. And there were, you know, examples of just rumors that were started 
uh, being spread about people having affairs, which was just not true. And then this relationships ended. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of, you know, small tragedy that is not the execution of um, a black militant leader or, you know, this kind of scandal with a starlet. But it would have happened so often that people's lives were in some really fundamental way ruined Mm -hmm. by really meaningless, pointless political tactics whose end goal, uh, you know, I'm not sure. They were constantly digging for dirt on some of the leaders, too, of the the local or the different KKK wizards or these. They were constantly digging for... Um, stories about you know if they could interview the ex-wives and see if there, that there's anything there they can get or if they were adulterous or um, they were constantly trying to dig too for their personal yeah J. Edgar Hoover was obsessed with that idea that you could just use sex scandals in order to have control over people in fact I believe it was uh, Harry Truman because of course J. Edgar Hoover outlasted a ton of presidents Mm -hmm. because he was the head of the FBI from the 30s to his death in the 70s. Mm -hmm. That's a long time to be in charge. And Truman said of Hoover, and here's a quote, "Uh, we want no Gestapo or secret police. The FBI is tending in that direction. They're dabbling in sex life scandals and plain blackmail. J. Edgar Hoover would give his right eye to take over, and all congressmen and senators are afraid of him. Mm Mm-hmm. I think I think that it's true that there was a lot of people who were afraid of the FBI within the American government, and that itself is an amazing fact. Yeah, if true. Well, uh, we've come across evidence before that the F, that FBI and Hoover, in particular, had some dirt on Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, admittedly, an easy guy to get dirt on. <laughs> Lots of dirt. Yeah, there's there's no way we're gonna in any way cheer up in this episode. No. So why it's don't we finish up with with, finish up with, with Fred Hampton, which I think is maybe the... So that's where we started today about this assassination. And the way it came to light um, was there was an article. So I'm, I'm now following a guy who is actually Friends uh, co-participant. His name is Jeffrey Haas. His, that last name is H-A-A-S. And uh, he wrote a book about um, this assassination of Fred Hampton. He remembers reading the newspaper and discovering that one of their members, a guy named William O'Neill, actually had been an FBI informant. And what it turns out that happened, and the later documents, um, both from the... uh, Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, which first stole the documents, and then a huge um, access to information request. Um, finally, uh, the government had to release up to something, I think, 50,000 documents that detailed all of this. And what came out through these documents, as well as through the eyewitness reports, is that uh, O'Neill, who was uh, Fred Hampton's bodyguard, was an informant working for the FBI. He met the FBI before the raid on the house and provided them with floor plans. Um, Later, uh, Jeffrey Haas and other people recount um, their interactions with him and how he was really a provocateur, how he was really somebody who always went for 
He was very loud at meetings. He always called for violence. He 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 tried to encourage other people hmm. um, in criminal activity, which is very much what the role of the FBI agents was. Mm-hmm. It was really to stoke violence, to create the violence that they were supposedly after, or trying to prevent. That is, and um, so uh, Haas later talks about how it's sort of a bit like discovering that a, um, a partner is has been unfaithful and you start re-remembering all these instances mm-hmm. of uh, your life with them and fitting that together with this new narrative mm-hmm. and he suddenly realizes that yeah this guy was totally an informant um it turns out he had met the fbi and given them floor plans and then that night the night of the raid and there is some controversy about this he apparently drugs uh, Fred Hampton with barbiturates. He cooks them a meal. Um, all of the members who come to that house that evening. So they had been at a um, political education session r- led by Hampton. This is part of the Black Panther uh, movement. That's what the party is about, sort of spreading the word. And what was common was that some of the people would go back and they went to Hampton's place and had a meal together cooked by William O'Neill this time. Um, William O'Neill apparently drugs Fred Hampton's drink. Uh, and that is why when the police raid at 4.45 in the morning, nobody can mm-hmm. rouse him, even though all these shots are being fired. Um, O'Neill was not there that night. So although he was the bodyguard and although he is a close, quote unquote, friend, associate of Hampton, he cooks the meal and then leaves all other nine members stick around mm-hmm. and spend the night. Um, yeah. And so this is the connection that ties Fred Hampton to the Cointel program and makes him one of the members who was assassinated by the FBI. Um, this this isn't just my opinion. <laughs> there are then a number of subsequent court cases that actually prove this to the point where um, the the family members are awarded settlements in the 80s of, I think, about $2 million. Um, the I think the FBI's own ballistics people said this was... This guy was shot lying down. So the first thing, the FBI actually lied about it and said that there had been a gun battle. Well, okay, so hold on. This was not just done by the FBI. This was done by the, this was sort of orchestra. It gets a little complicated. The informant was working for the FBI. The raid was done by the Chicago police. And the Chicago police claimed, okay, so first of all, the, the, um, the reason for the raid was apparently um, to get illicit guns. Uh, they did have guns on the premises, probably not illicit, but they did have guns. When they went in, they claimed there was a firefight. Um, and subsequently, they, they pointed at holes in the wall to say, look, here are the bullet holes. Those turned out to be nail holes. Like they made it up. They lied mm. about it. Um, Edward Han- Hanrahan, uh, he was the Cook County, Illinois uh, state attorney. Uh, he's the one who grants the um, the search warrant based on this faulty information provided by William O'Neill, the informant, that they had illegal weapons. Um, and he is later uh, indicted by a grand jury uh, for obstructing justice and conspiracy to present false evidence. He is later acquitted. Um, and there is... Uh, 
uh, as I said, a settlement made towards the family members. There was maybe one bullet fired by a Black Panther member, and that was probably by Mark Clark. He was the bodyguard who was on duty when he was killed. There's apparently a reaction that can happen where your body seizes up. Mm. And because he was holding a gun, right. there was... It could have been an involuntary yeah. spasm. There was one bullet that was fired after most of the bullets by the police had been fired. Um, and that is the death of Fred Hampton by the FBI and the Chicago police and uh, this COINTEL program. Now, I guess if we got to end on some kind of good news... After the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI did their amazing heist operation, which I would love to see a movie of, because it seems really cinematic, like they're breaking in with crowbars, mm -hmm. and, and they had sent in somebody beforehand to pose as like a college student to stake the place out and all this other stuff. It was amazing. Well, after they published all of this COINTELPRO information, it's the only reason we know about it, uh, the U.S. government did form a committee, the Church Committee, which basically said... Okay, all of our intelligence agencies have gone bananas. Like between MKUltra and COINTELPRO and some other ones we haven't even gotten a chance to talk to, like Operation Chaos. Project Minaret. Like, the, to a degree, the American government self-corrected. To a degree. Maybe not to the necessary degree, mm. but I mean, at least we can maybe find some. I need to find something. So I would love to find something positive here too, but... I feel as though any progress that might have been made because of the church committee and other, you know, other, uh, a kind of sea change in the mood with the general population who became very suspicious as a result of this and other revelations that happened at the same time, like Watergate. Watergate. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But I think some of that has been rolled back again after the terror attacks of 9-11 um, and then the Patriot Act and things like that, which has given back the kinds of powers that the FBI had that allowed them to do this stuff in the first place. And this was a lesson, I think, if anything, of unchecked power and secrecy. I've also heard some, uh, I didn't have enough time to look through all, to, you know, to deeply investigate, but um, some parallels being drawn between some surveillance right now of, of like Black Lives Matter. Oh, for sure. And maybe, I don't know to what degree, Exactly, in terms of some of the, the leaders or organizers, but there's definitely like social media watching going on in terms of what's being posted and who's saying what. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's something down the line to even look at, some parallels. What are some lessons that we get from this story? The story of COINTELPRO, the story of what happens when you allow a bureaucratic organization to have far too much power and not nearly enough transparency like is there anything that we can get from the story um we're also sad now I yeah know. well so let's talk about the Loch Ness Monster next time <laughs> <laughs> um there's a few things I took from it one of them as I said earlier in the podcast was I had encountered this kind of narrative in socialist countries during the Cold War and I always knew that there was also nefarious stuff going on at home, but I really have to admit that I didn't realize it was this um, brutal and far-ranging and absolutely outrageous in scope. That's one of the things that I took out of it, but I took more. 
<laughs> Another one is that it's interesting how little COINTELPRO has remained in the public consciousness. We compare it to something like Watergate. Watergate, the revelations of Watergate happened at about the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think that anybody who is completely disinterested in conspiracies knows about Watergate. I think many people interested in conspiracies don't know about COINTELPRO. I'm not exactly sure why mm. that is, yeah. but I think it's really interesting because I think comparing the two, I think Cohen Telpro is far, far more significant than Watergate. Mm -hmm. I guess we don't have a figure like Nixon attached to Cohen Telpro. In the right, same there's way. no face to it. Yeah, which is the danger of bureaucracy. Yeah, and why yeah. bureaucracies can get away with things like this because there isn't a face that we can point to and be like, well, I guess J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things, a lot of reasons. Uh, once again, like sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think this just sort of shows again, it's, I mean, these are cliches, but these are useful cliches that I think are, are sort of accurate. Like there is a danger in power. Power does corrupt. We should be, I, I feel like governments should be more afraid of runaway power and maybe less afraid of their citizens. Mm-hmm. I think we would all agree that sometimes the most patriotic thing you can do, if you love your country... Absolutely, is to dissent, is to That's right. challenge. Yeah. Um, so it always upsets me when still to this day you see... When you see these accusations against people being, or groups being made saying, well, that's actually unpatriotic, when actually it is inherently probably more mm -hmm. patriotic what those people are doing. We need to redefine patriotism. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, all you listeners might have noticed we sound a lot better this time. Um, Our voices are, <laughs> I think, uh, a lot more. Why, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> and so we've upgraded. Nathan did some major upgrades in what we like to call the bunker. Yeah, we're in, we're in uh, recording in historic uh, bunker studio. Uh, we should probably describe it for the people. Well, there's a photo listening. on Instagram now. Oh, so I, I posted a selfie of all of us, and you can kind of get a picture of it. Can you see that we're that we're surrounding a bowl full of shrimp in the picture? I don't, I don't think I got the shrimp in. I'll have to do one from a different angle. That, that's an important part of the recording. We, everyone <laughs> should know that we always I'll record post it around. After. A, I'll yeah, post it that's after. right. We record yeah. around a shrimp bowl. Yeah. the mm. shrimp is the fourth podcast member. Yeah, yeah. and I don't, silent. I, we're not eating the shrimp. They're living shrimp yeah. swimming right. around in a little bowl. Yeah. That's, that's right. They, they give us half our ideas and uh we also remember that uh, the internet is around and social media is a thing oh yeah and so we're on instagram now um at the uncover up we are also on twitter at the uncover up we're also on facebook look up the uncover up speaking of surveillance and overreach yes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh nicely done <laughs> and uh so i i noticed um i want to say hi to uh samantha from Instagram because she um, says she's excited to listen to our next podcast. So. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Sam. Sorry it was so sad. Yeah, yeah, this is a rough one. We hope you're not sad now. I'm sad now. I'm sad. But Samantha made me happy. Okay. Okay. <laughs>